Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in Western Montana. The first podcast, and it's just practice we could do as you suggested earlier and just talk about our day. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. All right. All right. So we woke up. (laughs) (laughs) Got right to it, basically. Well, um, to give it a little bit of structure, why don't you start with uh, something in your day that was a either like a point of accomplishment, satisfaction, or um, pride. Hmm. <laughs> well, we got to the to our first greenhouse. It's the one that we've had since we first started Fernco, and uh, you know, we put a video out on Instagram talking about how our uh, rodent and pest issues. And it's been a few days actually since we caught anything <clears throat> in our traps, but for some reason. Uh, today was the day to catch field mice, uh, even though we hadn't even caught any field mice in a week and a half. And there was seven in the traps and uh, a vole and a shrew. So um, it's working. Our our ideas uh, for the, the greenhouse as far as catching the pests that are coming in, um, it seems to be working. Sometimes they aren't coming in, but when they do, uh, we have those traps just set and ready to uh, capture those pests. And we haven't had any real issue uh as far as uh, crop loss in in a couple weeks now yeah that's really exciting and what is that method for trap setting um that like what makes it different than just setting a normal mouse trap well what makes a difference uh or different from setting a normal trap is when you just set a random one of those victor traps or whatever they're called uh they if you just set them randomly you're not you're just relying on luck um, and you're not actually uh, constricting the movement of the pests through a particular place in order to catch them more readily. And just so that, so the odds are just different, I would say. And so how for someone who has, say, even just a small little greenhouse at home and they're trying to get some seeds started, but the mice keep getting in and eating those starts, what can they look for to help themselves determine where they should be setting traps. Yeah, so if you, around your greenhouse, I'm not sure there's many different ways to build a greenhouse, but around the base of our greenhouse, we have a bunch of wood, of course, and, and these voles and, and mice are burrowing underneath that that wood and coming through, and you can actually see it if you get down to just the ground level and look around the base of your greenhouse. We saw a bunch of these holes uh, that all of our pests are coming through, and that that becomes their highways, right? They're they're this is a behavior that they have learned, and they don't really stride away too often from their runs that are through pasture or their runs that are getting into the greenhouse. They are consistently going through these already established roadways, and there's probably even scent, I would say, that they're um, tuning into when finding um, means of traveling from one place or the other that is safe as possible and so voles for example they they primarily burrow completely under the ground i mean they have some vol vol runs above ground but most of those um most of their movements are below ground i mean you can have in your fields miles Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is really insane of these underground uh 
uh, movement ways. I don't know how else to put them. <laughs> <laughs> They're underground highways. That's right. <clears throat> well, very cool. What would you say to uh, the person that sees a cruelty aspect to catching and killing so many of these rodents mm. and pests that cause damage to your greenhouse? Well, you don't really have to worry about their populations. Um, these aren't really endangered species by any means. And, and estimates that I've seen online are as much as 400 voles per acre. So if you have, if you have 10 acres, that's 4,000 animals that you are trying to contend with when they're trying to eat these crops that are just as tasty as it is to them as to us. And I don't know. I mean, people can think about or people can think however way they want um, but when it comes to eating produce, you're, you're going to be tied to, uh, it's not cruelty, but you're just going to be tied to the death of animals, whether it's a big giant combine that is going through these 10,000 acre fields of, of wheat and soy, you're going to be hitting fawns, especially fawns. I mean, it's really sad to think about, but their defense mechanism, the reason why they have those spots is to blend in. And the reason why they don't smell at all when they first come out of uh, uh, the womb is because they their defense mechanism is to just lay down and hide whenever there's a danger approaching. So their moms might run away from that combine that's coming down, but <laughs> that combine is going to likely hit those hit those babies. Um, but you know, when it comes to growing on a smaller scale, we don't necessarily have those issues, but we do have issues with much smaller pests and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> yeah. I guess at the end of the day to grow food for ourselves, there will always be other species out there that are wanting to also consume our food. And if you want to eat, not even getting into the animal kingdom, but if you want to be able to eat vegetables you're going to well if you want to grow them to consume them you're going to have to deal with pest management and it isn't always a catch and release type situation yeah i mean that's that's crazy you would be spending half of your time just relocating all of these mm -hmm. these pests especially especially these voles and and field mice yeah i don't know uh, what other methods do you have in place on the farm to help with pest management of all sorts. Of all sorts. Well, I mean, when it comes to these voles specifically, you know, keeping your, your surrounding area short and, and cut, so it would just inhibit their their affinity towards going towards your, your fields if there's 40 to 50 feet of really, really short grass that uh, they have to go across day or night, because we have great horned owls here, and, and they eat I mean, I, um, my estimates would probably be five to 10 voles a night. And uh, so, yeah, just certainly keeping the grass and the surrounding uh, debris really short surrounding your fields. Um, but other other organic methods as far as um, uh, managing pests is, you know, row cover. That's a, that's a big one. So there are a few different products out there. There's there's Agribon, which also doubles as a, an insulating fleece for early and late season crops. So it's kind of a double protection. And there's also insect netting, which is this really, really fine mesh uh, netting. That it doesn't hold any, any heat to the ground if you put it over, unlike Agrabon. But it does protect against pests like thrips, uh, grasshoppers, um, I mean, really any other pests, even flea beetles. So that's definitely a great way to control pests. Cool. 
Uh, what would you say is the most unique or out of the ordinary pest that you've encountered on the farm? Something that perhaps people wouldn't really expect to see as a pest. Uh, gosh, that's a, well, it's also relative to me. I'm trying to think of any unique, unique ones. Can you think of anything? Uh, the, the one thing that came to my mind were the, uh, shoot, what are they? The golden finches. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's this beautiful little bird that on most people's property, they would probably love to see it hanging around and enjoying the bird feed that they put out. Uh, but I'll let you touch on the problem (laughs) that they do cause when you're trying to farm on a market garden type scale and actually produce food to sell and make a living. Yeah. Especially making a living. Right. And that's why we do have to control pests is because this is our inventory. It's a perishable good. And these things stay in the ground for upwards of even, you know, four to six months, even as an annual. And so the bottom line, when it comes to it, if you're having 40% crop loss from your pests, but you don't feel like you should you should kill them because they're compromising your bottom line for your business. It's like, eh, I don't know if that's a good practice uh, in the business mindset. But yeah, so those golden fitches, they have a particular love for kinopods, which are beets, Swiss chard, spinach. Um, trying to think, that's about it really as far as what we grow. But it's a particular uh, family, I believe, of um of crops that for some reason they love chewing these giant holes in swiss chard and so you'd see me in the mornings or whenever running down and flailing my arms but these little buggers they (laughs) they are not afraid they'll just go to the other other side of the the bed and and start chewing again so i'll just be running back and forth trying to protect the crops and I mean, it gets to a point where that's, it's not, uh, or the time that you're allocating to that becomes uh, a law diminishing return or you're not getting as much return for it. You could be doing plenty of other, other tasks for the day. So, you know, a great way to protect that is, is the insect netting. It's called protect net, protect net. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's quite expensive, but it lasts a few seasons. And, and that's a great way to um, cover crops that, that birds are eating. I mean, we're pretty lucky when it comes to um, bird pests. There are some farms here in the Bitterroot Valley that have had real issues with real issues with Canadian geese uh, and other geese um, that are migrating. This is the Western Corridor um, for migratory migratory bird species for Montana, and so uh, thousands and thousands of birds come down through this area uh, on any given fall or spring. So. Um, I wouldn't want to be them. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of damage or issues do the geese cause on farms? Well, they'll they'll eat, you know, thousands of seeds that say you just tra- or just seeded corn or soy or or peas or whatever. They'll go through and, and eat all that seed. So you could have reduced germination, of course, because they're consuming it. Um, but also, like, fuck, I, I wouldn't want them shitting all over my crops you know (laughs) like that that doesn't seem very hygienic right and I was actually that leads me to a question I had uh, about their poop in comparison to something like chicken where if you do have free range or pasture raised chickens on your farm I have heard that it can be beneficial to utilize that chicken manure but not so much with geese well it would take all day to go and <laughs> collect all of the, the goose shit all around the field. So 
that wouldn't be very economical. Um, you know, chickens are uh, a way better way of uh, acquiring uh, the nitrogen that is in their shit. Um, but you're not going to, I mean, you can spread them in a field, uh, their raw manure, but you should really be composting uh, that manure first before you use it. Uh, and that's what we use as a primary fertilizer or fertilizer is composted chicken manure. And it's a great fertilizer. Um, the, uh, the content, it's as far as the NPK is 322. So it's a pretty balanced fertilizer uh, for our crop needs. And it has both insoluble and soluble nitrogen. And so that soluble nitrogen, it's going to be available for your crops day one. As soon as you transplant or those seeds start growing, that's going to be available. But nit soluble nitrogen is also water soluble. So if you have really sandy soil, um, that nitrogen is actually going to leach down into your subsoil or subsequently be taken away um, to where your plants can access it. And that's why the insoluble nitrogen is really important because that's really going to be um, your nitrogen source throughout the majority of the life cycle of a plant. Um, that gets uh, converted into soluble nitrogen through the uh, various nitrogen-fixing bacteria and various other uh, organisms that make that nitrogen uh, plant available. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a great fertilizer to use, but <laughs> I would certainly not use goose shit. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you have a big, big flock of geese, if you're raising them for goose eggs or for peaking duck or something, you can compost that for sure. But, um, I wouldn't spread it raw on greens. In fact, mm -hmm. we, <laughs> we had, we have a friend who, uh, decided to use, what was it? Uh, alpaca, alpaca shit. And they spread it all over their carrots and greens within like two or three weeks of harvesting those to eat. And they all got sick mm -hmm. and like dangerously sick. So I wouldn't recommend that. I, I would definitely put all that stuff through uh, a compost heap in order to get rid of any pathogens that are in that, in that fresh manure. And can you explain to our listeners what that means to compost manure and what it is that's taking place to allow it to become safe to use on your farm versus using fresh manure? Yeah, well, there's many different kind, many different methods of composting, uh, but primary, especially for organic use, actually, which is a whole nother topic, but they only allow aerated compost. It's like, it's your standard compost that heats up to 140 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. And once it gets up to those temperatures, uh, it actually kills pathogens and it even can destroy weed seeds. And so you're, um, you're spreading a uh, stable manure or stable uh, fertilizer onto your, onto your plants or onto your beds. So, yeah. I mean, do you want me to go into like the, the in-depth of how to produce compost? or? No, no. I think the most important thing to touch on is just the fact that you shouldn't take fresh, hot manure to use as compost on your beds because of that risk of, um, I guess, w what can it be? E. coli? Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly which pathogens. I'm sure there's, I mean, there's E. coli all over soil and, you know, so I'm not sure, probably. Um, I'm trying to think of other pathogens that would be in, in fresh manure. I mean, salmonella, certainly from chickens, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that could be one of the reasons why we have many salmonella outbreaks um, across the industry. I mean, using also human waste, but also 
other uh, fresh manures that haven't gone through that composting process. You know, organic certification, you're required to, if you're using fresh manure, I think it's a minimum of 120 days before harvest. Uh, so say I, I um, spread that manure with a manure spreader onto my fields on March, March 30th. Um, when July 30th comes around, that is the earliest that I can harvest that crop. You know, if it's a, a crop that, say, like tomatoes where um, the tomatoes aren't on the ground, I think it's 90 days. But that just shows you uh, how important it is to have um, uh, sanitary practices mm -hmm. when it comes to using manure um, yeah. on your fields. It is poop at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, manure, manure spreading is a good way, but you have to use a, a lot more manure to actually um, get the right amount of nitrogen in the soil. When you spread fresh manure on the soil, um, stuff starts to oxidate. And so uh, carbon is released, nitrogen is released into the air, back into uh, stable nitrogen gas or carbon dioxide. And so you're losing a lot of that fertility, that carbon-based um, uh, or that carbon element. Um, and so it's a way better way to stabilize all of these um, in a way, unstable uh, compounds and elements through compost because that will um, turn it into various humic substances. So you have three different humic substances. You have humic acid, you have uh, fulvic acid, and you have human. And uh, humic acid is something that is very, very stable in the ground, and uh, or it's a very, very stable carbon molecule that stays in the ground, and it, it just wants to bind... Uh, and hold on to various other soluble cations like zinc or calcium, etc. And so the more of these humic substances that you have in your soil, um, the more it's going to hold on to these various other nutrients, these, mi mi these, excuse me, these micronutrients that you want for your crop's health. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend composting a, as opposed to manure spreading. But, you know, some of these larger farms... Um, you know, they have read, you know, readily access to these huge swaths of, of basically CAFO uh, manure mounds. And they just go out to these uh, confined agricultural feed operations, the acronym CAFO, um, haul, you know, literal semi truckloads to their uh, to their farms and spread that and start growing some wheat. Yum. Yum. <laughs> Uh, on the note of compost, do you have recommendations for people at home that might be trying to compost, even if just on a small scale, to help either reduce their household waste mm -hmm. and or with the hopes of using that compost in their own at-home garden? Yeah, well, it depends on how much food waste or carbon-based waste that you have. So if you're just a single person in an apartment, you know, maybe you're going to have to get together with a few other people in order to produce enough food waste to actually make a aerated compost uh, you know when you're producing some of these compost or when you're producing compost heaps you want to have a minimum uh, footprint uh, or basically a minimum amount of material because if you don't have enough material in the right combinations it's not going to heat up it's just as simple as that you know you might go out into your back and uh, or out behind your house and, and throw some coffee grounds on the ground and put a little bit of dry straw on the ground and think that it's composting, but it, it's not. It's not. This is a specific uh, process that um, allows these things called thermophilic bacteria uh, to start 
basically consuming all this carbon-based materials and nitrogen um, in order to start uh, producing heat. The byproduct is actually heat. Um, and unfortunately, you're actually getting a lot of that in or uh, a lot of that energy is coming out of those those compost heaps, compost heaps in the form of heat energy. Um, but it's a great way for sure. Um, I would recommend a minimum of a three by three foot um, footprint. And you want to start layering your carbon based materials, things like straw, uh, things like even um, even cardboard, though I'm, I'm kind of shy away from using any industrial industrially made uh, carbon based materials. Um, but that's that's this whole separate conversation there. Uh, and then your nitrogen sources, those are going to be your greens. Those are going to be your uh, avocado rind. It's going to be your orange rind. And yes, you can compost citrus. Um, there's <laughs> some folklore out there that you can't. And we've certainly composted it and it's been totally fine. Um, but yeah, you want to have the right combination of nitrogen to carbon in order to actually produce an aerated compost heat that heaps up to that 140 to 160 degree Fahrenheit um, uh, temperature. Yeah. And so if you have an at-home compost system of some sort, do you have to stir and or turn that organic matter over? Well, <laughs> not really. You don't necessarily need to turn compost. It certainly increases or decreases the amount of time that it takes to fully compost that material. But uh, no, you can certainly just keep on layering uh, your food scraps and your carbon-based material um, and not turn it at all. I mean, there has been plenty of successes out there. One of them is is Charles Dowding. Is that his name right? Charles Down Downing? He's out of the um, out of England. I believe so, but he, you know, he he only uses compost uh, for his fertilizer. He doesn't use anything else, and it's primarily f uh, materials that he actually produces on farm. And he doesn't recommend it. I think he actually turns it once, um, maybe about two to four weeks in. But it, it, you, that's why you're you're monitoring the temperature of that of that compost because you know when you when you build that that heap. Um, the first day, you're not going to get any heat development. But by the second day, you might just start to see uh, the temperature creeping up to maybe 100 degrees. And by the third or fourth day, all of a sudden, it could be up towards 160 degrees, especially if you put too much nitrogen in that compost heat. And so at, at that temperature, you really do want to turn that, turn that compost heap again, because if you start to get into the 165 degree and above um, temperatures, it's going to go anaerobic really quickly. And so there are other anaerobic uh, bacteria that you probably don't want in that compost. Uh, with that being said, though, there's also anaerobic compost making, and then you actually get a, uh, a larger return on your initial investment. What I mean by that is, say I put a thousand or <laughs> one ton, excuse me, one ton of material into that anaerobic compost heat you get 90% of that original weight in your final product. When uh, you're doing an aerated compost, because of all of the energy um, in the form of heat and the, um, the aeration of that heat, you're gonna, you might get 60 to 70% of that original investment as mm -hmm. far as the weight of that material. So, yeah. 
And do people need to worry about their compost getting so hot that it could spontaneously combust and catch fire? Well, probably. Um, it's it's potential, especially if, if you have some really dry material in there. I mean, we've seen our compost heap creep up towards 165, and at that point, because we're monitoring it on a daily basis, we turn it. But if we let that go, it could it could very well creep up to 190 degrees or above. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've never seen it. I haven't really looked to see if it ever has happened, but I'm pr- I'm sure it's possible. <laughs> so at the very least, monitor that temperature. Yeah. Um. So how could a person know when that compost is ready to use, whether it's adding mm. it to some little pots on their patio or to a small garden bed that they have at home or um, to their actual farm fields? Yeah. So compost needs to, to mature, or at least in this method, the aerated compost method, it needs to mature to a point uh, where the temperature drops down to ambient temperature. And you want to let that compost heat mature, uh, I would say, at least a month after it uh, drops to, say, 100 degrees or so. Uh, and that's because it's entering a different phase of, ma- of, the, uh, of the process. Different bacteria are taking over, but primarily, if you're making a good compost, the, the fungi are now taking over, um, over the breakdown of those carbonaceous materials. And so, you know, you have these thermophilic bacteria that are uh, there or are present uh, during the uh, thermophilic stage, um, which is above, say, 135 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you keep on turning it and turning it. And if that temperature doesn't go back up to over 135 degrees, your heap is going to is mature. You don't need to turn it anymore. You're just going to be um, wasting carbon because in the form of carbon dioxide that's released um, from the heap. So you don't really want to turn it if that temperature does not I- increase uh, after you turn it again. And, and the fungi are really beneficial. I mean, that's that's a major part of, of composting is that you get a wide variety of, uh, of fungal networks that are in that compost. And essentially, you're inoculating your soil with with the various spores that um, if the fungi sporulate, mm-hmm. but certainly of the mycelium that are that are in that heat. Yeah, and I think we could have a whole conversation just on um, just on fungi uh, related to the soil uh, and our whole ecosystem for that matter. But mm-hmm. um, just to finalize the the thoughts on compost, what would a person be looking for physically? Like, what does that compost look like? Uh, before you start using it? Do you see any of your original matter? Is it broken down? Does it look like soil? What are they looking for? Yeah, so most at-home composts are not going to look like the commercial compost that you get in a bag. Um, Those are commercial facilities, and they have these giant windrow inverters, these huge machines, and these compost heaps are hundreds and hundreds of feet long, and 20, 30 feet wide sometimes, and this, they're turning that almost daily, and they can produce this beautiful, fine uh, compost that you might not get at home, but that's okay. Uh, you want uh, carbonaceous material in your soil that is difficult to break down because it lasts longer. It holds on to more moisture, um, but it also slowly feeds the fungal networks that are in your soil. So when you have, say, wood chips, you're going to still see wood chip at the end of your matured pile, but that's okay. There's a compound called lignin cellulose that is in really, really 
like carbonaceous woody material that is like one of the favorite foods of um, uh, I think it's called sapro saprophytic fungi or the fungi that break down woody material like um, uh, oyster mushrooms or maitake or uh, uh, garicon these other um, various fungi um, but yeah you your material is going to look uh, very different depending on what you put into it. So if I just use straw and I cut it up into super fine material and just use coffee grounds for my nitrogen uh, app or my nitrogen source, uh, it's going to look very different than if I use a really big wood chip with uh, um, um, old uh, tomato vines and um, what else? I mean, you know, um, squash uh, squash plants, mm -hmm. things like that. Excuse me. And so, yeah, it's going to look very different. Um, but you're really, you want to be, uh, monitoring that temperature. That's going to be your best indication of when that compost has matured fully. So yeah, it's just going to look different. And what about adding eggshells to your compost? Would you say it is beneficial to add them to your main compost pile or more beneficial to keep them separate and utilize those shells in a different way? Um, either, either way. So you can make a, a soluble calcium fertilizer. Um, that is, you basically have a bunch of uh, eggshells that you crush up into a fine powder. And then um, I think it's you just put vinegar on it and it solubilizes um, that calcium. And you can use that as a foliar spray or a root trench or just put it directly on your fields. Um, but, you know, if say if you have too much phosphorus in the soil and you're applying that super soluble calcium, it's going to immediately bind to that phosphorus and precipitate out into calcium phosphate. And if you don't have those mushroom, uh, if you don't have those fungal networks that are able to split the bonds of calcium and phosphorus, you're not going to be able to utilize that calcium. And so one way to increase the bioavailability of calcium is to actually crush those eggshells and put them into your compost and let them go through a cycle. You're still going to have bits and pieces of that eggshell in your finished matured compost, but that's okay. Think about it as you're putting slow-release calcium into your soil in the form of crushed eggshell. Um, that's totally fine. You're going to have calcium um, slowly being released or metabolized um, with the life in the soil and making that available, uh, that calcium available for your plants. So either way, you know, it depends on your application, depends on your needs, depends on your soil. Awesome. <laughs> I yeah. think that'll set people up to at the very least begin to experiment with at-home composting, uh, if only for the benefit of reducing their household trash by yeah. putting all those, all that organic matter elsewhere, um, along with their yard clippings and things like that. Oh, for sure. Yep. Um, and if anybody has any questions as far as how to make compost um, or how to produce calcium fertilizers, definitely reach out to us. We're happy to answer and maybe even make some content um, that's a little more uh, visual mm -hmm. uh, in the form of video um, so people can understand how to do this because it's a really cheap way to um, produce fertilizer at home. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And on that note, at our cafe, we have currently been saving uh, both coffee grounds as well as all of our eggshells to use mm -hmm. back on our farm. 
And what we'll do with our eggshells is create a video that we can then share with you guys explaining the process of using eggshells start to finish to uh, put them back in our own farm. And for us, we use all organic and or locally raised eggs. I uh, will talk, <coughs> excuse me, we'll talk a bit more about um, the different varieties of eggs that you can purchase and whether or not you will want to use those particular shells in your garden and if there is any issue with using conventional eggs um, versus using organic eggs. It's a great question actually. Yeah. So the health of the eggshell has um, a direct tie to the health of your hens and if your hens are not getting enough supplemental calcium or calcium in their diet that's why you have really brittle eggshells because they had don't have enough i mean they literally take it from their bones if they don't have supplemental calcium um, or an adequate amount in their in their food right so a shell will tell you a lot about uh the chickens that are mm -hmm. laying them and interestingly enough this winter when there was an egg shortage occurring in montana for local eggs we had to outsource to obtain enough eggs to run our restaurant and we ordered in organic eggs from a distributor and the eggs came from somewhere in washington and so our perspective was getting organic eggs in from out of state was the best option and maybe a better option than using a local egg that is not organic and maybe not pasture raised. Mm -hmm. However, with those organic eggs, they're very, very thin shelled, mm -hmm. very low quality, not the best flavor. And so we have since transitioned to using local eggs mm -hmm. and we're I would uh, love to show a video of it too, just <laughs> in the difference of the shell thickness and the color. Um, but the local eggs, even at this time of year, are just much more, um, and is much more full of nutrients and those shells are just so much thicker. Yeah. Um, and if saving shells is something that you're interested in doing to use them in your home garden, and if your family doesn't eat enough to actually make it viable to do something with, you could always check in with local cafes and restaurants that likely are just throwing theirs in the garbage. I think we're one of few places that truly composts and reuses of, everything and yeah. anything that we can. As far as food waste as goes. As far as mm -hmm. food waste goes, yes. Mm -hmm. And so during the winter months when our farm is not actively composting, we were giving all of our food scraps mm -hmm. to a local farmer that raises pigs mm -hmm. uh, so that they could have some good organic produce to consume for the winter to grow big and strong. Yeah. And then we'll transition back into using all of our uh, organic scraps back on our farm to help build our compost once um, spring really hits and things start warming up outside. Yeah, I mean, well, we could be composting all winter long and you can compost all winter long. But if you're in a place where there's a, a ton of moisture um, in the form of rain or snow that is going onto your compost, it might saturate that that heap to a point where it's not aerated anymore. And so there's a lack of oxygen and it might either just cool it right down um, um, or, and yeah, it'll just basically just cool it right down. So, you know, we want to build structure and over a structure that has an overhang so that there um, our compost heaps are uh, controlled as far as how much moisture is going into them, because that is the third component of compost. 
is moisture. If you don't have enough, if you're just trying to compost dry material like uh, straw or hay, it's not going to heat up. You know, water, life needs water. And so, so does your compost. But speaking about eggs, I mean, one of the things that I'm pretty upset about for organic eggs is that they require vegetarian feed. And that is absolutely asinine. Mm. Chickens are omnivores. They're uh, they're ob- not obligate omnivores, but <laughs> they are. <laughs> they choose to be omnivores. And if you have pasture-raised chickens, they will eat mice. They will eat grasshoppers. They will eat any other insects that they can get their their beaks on. And the fact that the organic industry has reduced um, or constricted organic farms from uh, utilizing supplemental feed like uh, even like cricket meal or uh, black soldier fly larvae these things have an insane protein composition in them and we would see healthier eggs and thus in return healthier humans so i mean that's one of the aspects of organic farming that i don't agree or organic practices that i don't agree with we're talking about the usda certified organic label not necessarily producing organic because um chickens that eat other insects and animals it is organic yeah absolutely and that is a really interesting topic of conversation the um, practices of the usda and we'll get into those uh, in another episode but um yeah i don't know where i was gonna go with that (laughs) yeah well so we started the sourdough last year and and last year was absolutely insane um it was a really tough year for the hayward family um we lost a loved one and simultaneously started a a new business that we in an industry that we've never been in before certainly had never owned i mean we've both worked in the industry but we've certainly never um led it uh, an actual business in it and um, so you were completely all of your time was in the cafe you were in there for 60 to 80 hours a week mm-hmm. baking and also being the restaurant manager. And so we've gotten to a point where we have some wonderful employees that are now able to um, operate that business for the most part on the own and on their own. And we're trying to get uh, some more time for you to be back at the farm. So, you know, what kind of what kind of things are you excited about uh, on the farm this year? And uh, what kind of projects do you think that uh, you want to pursue? Uh, I'm excited for so many things on the farm, even just this weekend getting to plant our first eight different varieties of flowers, and I feel much more hopeful and confident that this year I'll be able to see them through and that they won't just end up going in the compost pile (laughs) because no one has time to transplant them, Um, and I have... I I would love to see our farm develop a flower and herb side Mm. to it. And so this year, hopefully, will be that chance to finally get to start to experiment to see if I can put some bouquets together as well as just some dried flowers and herbs that we can use medicinally and use for tea at the cafe and start to have that incorporation and connection. Um, So I'm excited for that. I'm also just really excited to get my pasty skin outside this year. You look pretty pasty over there. Yeah. Last year was tough with uh, going from the prior year getting to be out on the farm much more frequently to being literally inside from 5 to 5:30 a.m. until often 8 or 9 at night mm-hmm. just depending on the day especially during farmers market season 
and uh, so I'm excited to get my hands back in the dirt and my skin back in the sun. Um, I'm really excited, ugh, really excited also to have a little more time to start working on on there's a squirrel outside our window <laughs> squirrel uh, to start working on some content development for education around nutrition and farming and the connection to human health I think we'll be able to do uh, a lot of really fun things this year to begin to share information with the community that they've been asking for uh, and our current customer base, we have a lot of really amazing, dedicated customers that just want to learn more and want to know more about um, human health and the importance of agriculture and what all these fancy buzzwords mean these days about that micro, 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 <laughs> why can't I say it? Rizal fungi? Mycorrhizal. Mycorrhizal yeah. fungi. See, I can't even say the words. Um, and you can just call it MF. M for short. Oh, yeah. so no one will know that either. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do now. They do now. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really looking forward to developing, I guess that's a hands-off uh, development of the farm in that it's not physical work out there, um, but just to start to create those connections and tie people more directly to where their food is coming from. Yeah. So, you know, on that note, we're in this industry and our livelihood is tied to the sale of food that we grow on our own. What would you say to a customer who really wants to be able to produce all of their own food uh, at their place as opposed to coming in and, and purchasing it from the sourdough? Well, I, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a difficult question. Mm. Uh, I mean, the benefit of our model at the cafe is that if people are not wanting to come dine in and buy breakfast and or buy lunch, we always have a fridge that is full of organic produce mm -hmm. so they can come in, get inspiration based off of our menu and buy the supplies, of course, at a much lower rate than if you were to buy the food prepared for you and then take those ingredients home and create mm. their own meals. Yeah. Um, what I'm trying to point towards is that you know i i certainly am happy that people want to produce their own food you know we're in a um an industry where um the the population of farmers as a as a uh, with respect to the population of the country has gone from upwards of i think 30 to 40 percent in the turn of the, in, in, at the turn of the 20th century down to less than three percent of the population and so we have less farmers producing um, way more food, um, but they're they're overburdened, and um, the average age of a farmer these days is approaching seventy years old. So, I am excited uh, for people who want to to grow at least their own vegetables at home. First of all, it's going to save them a ton of money, um, but if they need help and assistance, we're happy to help and offer the content and uh, the information education that they need to do so. I see. Yes. So by produce, you mean grow your food yeah. at home. I thought you meant like prepare food. Oh, oh, no. uh, like make your own meals at mm -hmm. home. Uh, but 
on that note of growing at home, that is that is definitely an added benefit and perk uh, and joy of having your own home garden is being able to go out and grab your fresh greens and some cherry yeah. tomatoes and cucumbers and create something for yourself and or your family where you really get to taste that freshness compared to what you would find at a store, especially in the winter uh, when things have been on shelves much longer and are shipped in from elsewhere. But yeah, we certainly don't feel any competitiveness when it comes to the farming industry or farming community because there is so much space. And at the end of the day, the farmers that are here can't grow enough to support this entire state. No, absolutely when you think not. about when you think about farmers throughout the state of Montana. And most people, or I will say the majority of people that have a small plot of land like it can even just be a quarter of an acre should a have lot. a quarter of an acre yeah that's that's a decent sized city lot um you don't need a lot of space to be able to build a small raised garden bed or to put in a little plot somewhere in your yard that you could really easily grow enough food for yourself and a family for sure yeah you know as far as raised beds though in in a really arid um environment especially in montana we're in we're actually technically in the desert here in the bitterroot valley of western montana uh, we get i think on average about 13 inches of pre precipitation a year um, raised beds are going to dry out your soil much quicker than if you're going to be planting directly into the ground um, there are certainly situations where you would need to build a raised bed but you know i've seen some raised beds that are like four feet tall mm -hmm. and you know I just, I don't recommend that, you know, that, that soil is going to be too dry. You're not going to have, um, enough water to, um, um, provide the necessary nutrients in the plants. <laughs> There's actually this thing called mass flow. And it's one of the ways that plants uptake nutrients and that's through the movement of water. So, um, they have, as you remember in science class, they have these little, um, ports, if you will, called stoma that are on the underside of leaves and sometimes on stems. And these open and close depending on uh, the humidity uh, or the uh, relative humidity of the environment. And so when it's really low humidity, uh, they're, they're going to close up. So that mass flow, that movement of water from the roots uh, up into the, the body and the various other organs of, of the plants, um, that's how those nutrients get up. And if you have raised beds and that soil is going to be too dry, oftentimes your plants are going to be suffering from a lack of nutrition. So if you are going to be putting raised beds out here in the semi-arid desert, arid desert, I would make those raised, raised beds as short as possible. I wouldn't recommend anything over five inches tall. Mm -hmm. And on that note too, um, that all makes sense. And if, if the case were that someone it has, um, whatever issue that enables them from getting down on the ground to mm. put plant their seeds and or harvest their food, there are options for raised beds that are essentially garden boxes that are on stilts so that you can garden at waist level and you could still grow. It's similar to growing something in like a little patio planter pot. or yeah. pot. Um, so you can 
even if you don't have that capability of getting down on the ground really into the dirt, you can have raised boxes that are on legs so that you can have them more at a waist height and still be able to grow a variety of food. That's Perhaps a good point. not big roots that go down really deep mm-hmm. or things that need a lot of space for their roots to grow. But you could easily do greens and be- like strawberries, um, probably some tomatoes, mm-hmm. things like that if you have the space to uh, let them trellis up above. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, for sure. You know, you have to make some compromises, um, in order to do a particular, um, behavior like that. Like somebody if that was handicapped that, um, can't get down on the ground, but can actually, um, uh, garden in these taller raised beds. That's great for sure. Um, but plant nutrition. So plants, a lot of plants have these large tap roots that can go, you know, if they're annuals, some of them can go as far down as, a few feet and some perennials like uh, the taproots of the ponderosa pine, which uh, uh, dominates our, our landscape here. Those taproots go deep. They go dozens of feet down. And there's a lo- there's actually a lot of um, elements down there that plants need. Things like chromium or um, zinc or um, even sulfur that goes into the subsoil. So you are, if you do have those raised beds that are really tall, you are limiting uh, the plant's ability to take up these elements that are already in the soil presently. And so you're going to have to be careful um, and even take soil tests to make sure that um, these plants have the right, uh, or that soil has the right nutrition. Because a plant that does not have access to zinc, for example, is not going to have as much zinc in its material that you consume. And subsequently, you're not going to get as much zinc in your body. So it can compromise um, uh, human health if you're growing this food without healthy soil. And on the note of healthy soil, would you say it's important for the home gardener that is only growing in patio pots and small garden boxes, is it important for them to check their soil or to test their soil? I mean, probably not. But if you want to uh, have a real go at, at producing enough food and producing food that is really, truly nutritious, it is, it's a must. Um, you know, so for example, if you're a family of four and uh, you require or you guys consume, say, $5,000 worth of produce a year, right? That's a big investment. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money that you're allocating to um, uh, first or not only food that you're consuming, but also the health of your um, family constituents. So, um, you know, if you want to invest in the, in the health of your family and you want to grow enough food to completely cover your basis when it comes to produce, um, a soil test might be 20, 30 bucks and you can do it once a year and it'll allow you to really see what your soil is doing. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, we had a soil that was quite high in, in potassium, but the plants were deficient in potassium and what does, like, how, how is that possible? Right. Our pH was too high, but among other things, um, that were antagonizing the uptake of, of potassium to that plant. But um, so the soil test is of itself also limiting. And so mm-hmm. we also take tissue analysis of our plants to make sure that these plants are have the adequate amounts of these various elements in their uh, actual tissue. And that's another $20, $30 test. And it 
allows us to know exactly what that plant needs. Oh, you need zinc? I noticed that because your leaves are really small. Let me follow your spray some zinc because for some reason, my soil is, has adequate amounts of zinc, but it's just not getting into the plants. So yeah. So perhaps for the at-home grower that is maybe only growing one to five tomato plants, it may not be worth their time or money to do those tissue analyses, but they can certainly reach out to us and use our resources if their plants are looking funny, not producing fruit, not ripening. We get countless questions every year asking us, why are my tomatoes not ripening? Why do my plants have these blotchy leaves? And we have a lot of information that we are able to share and resources that we'll be posting online that people can access uh, to help them with their home gardens if they're not at that step where they're ready to invest in soil sampling and or tissue analyses. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But, you know, say you're growing five tomato plants. Um, some of those tomato plants can produce 20 to 40 pounds of fruit. And so that's, you know, what is that? Two, what is that? A <laughs> hundred to 200 pounds of tomato alone. And uh, at today's dollar value, that's 500 to $800. So a $30 test, it's not a big, big uh, uh, allocation of, of money in order to make sure that you're getting the optimal um, harvest or yield, but also the opt optimal nutrition for your health. Makes sense. <laughs> and we can certainly point people in the direction of having those um, analyses and tests done mm -hmm. and what it entails. It's very easy to do yourself at home. It is. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of these companies that are uh, a lot of these laboratories have their own resources um, online to to um, show you how to actually do this. And we can just link those mm -hmm. uh, on our website. But plus, it's just super fun to see what your plants are providing and what your soil contains. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's always really interesting looking at that data. It is. It's fat. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. It certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough. That's patreon.com backslash the sourdoe. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.